You're listening to the Golf Podcast. Hi everyone, this is Jen. I am recording outside today up on the bluff of Upper North Broadway in Corpus Christi um, and I'm standing next to the Centennial House which is the oldest house existing today in Corpus Christi and it's about 170 years old. The Centennial House looks like an old-timey southern plantation house. It has two stories, tall columns in the front with a porch and a second-story veranda. And if you look into the back, there's a tiny shack that appeared to have been the slave or servant's quarters. It's nestled in between a parking lot and then two modern office buildings. And the Centennial House is really neat because it's made out of shellcrete. Uh, which was this process of oh great now I've got people walking by again okay and shellcrete is the process of taking crushed up oyster shells as well as lime made from more oyster shells mixing it together with gravel or clay and water and then putting it into these wooden molds where it dries into a large brick and once it dried it dried into this very hard material and then those massive bricks were put together and then stuccoed or whitewashed on the outside and you had a very durable home. There's a truck going by, the hazards of recording in the field. This structure from 1850 still stands and it is withstood some of the massive hurricanes of the late 19th century as well as the very damaging and deadly hurricane of 1919. Hurricane Celia in 1970 had winds up to 160, 170 miles per hour, and Centennial House had lasted through that storm as well as more recent tropical storms and hurricanes, and still standing today. And it's a, a really a monument to oysters in Corpus Christi Bay and oysters in the surrounding area. Okay, back in the studio. Centennial House weathered the storms of the Texas coast. But the only reason the house still stands today is because of historic preservation efforts. During the 1960s, the Corpus Christi Area Heritage Society bought and restored the home. Ed Hart, by the way, was its president. If you remember back to episode three, this is the same Ed Hart who helped create Padre Island National Seashore and whose endowment created the Heart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies at Texas A&M University, Corpus Christi. And of course, they're the sponsor of this podcast. In this episode, we're going to explore the history and the future of oysters along the Texas coast. Since oyster shells were readily available, Many of the early brick homes in Corpus Christi, like the Centennial House, were made out of shellcrete. If they weren't, the home probably still had a shellcrete water cistern or shellcrete curbs and sidewalks, at least in the days before the city had a water system. Most Americans, however, would be more familiar with oysters as food, not as construction material. Oysters weren't just a popular food in the mid to late 19th century. It was more like a mania. The oyster was once the best-loved food on the continent, according to historian Paul Hedren. Oysters were eaten anywhere from street corners to fancy restaurants. On the East Coast, early Americans could buy oysters for only a penny. Oysters were cheap, plentiful, and healthy, 
which explains why they were such a democratic food. Today, due to oyster declines, eating oysters might not be considered a mania, but it's still popular. So when I heard my production assistant Max had never eaten an oyster, I sensed a perfect opportunity for some field recording. And I promptly sent him down to Water Street Oyster Bar, where he and his wife Brianna got fried oysters curbside. Let's roll the tape, then check in with Max over video chat. It's actually pretty good. I like it. Give it a try. Do you want sauce on yours? I don't know. That's really good. Yeah, I was expecting it to be like very like gooey and kind of like creamy. I don't know. <laughs> maybe maybe raw oysters are more like that, but it's pretty good. It almost has like a hush puppy texture. I've never right. had it before. You're right. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Hi, Max. How are you? Uh, you're muted. Oh. <laughs> um, okay. Sorry about that. So, how were your first oysters? Uh, they were good, actually. Uh, I was expecting, uh, I don't know, I was expecting them to be like really like creamy and gooey. My wife said that she was honestly expecting it to taste like a salty booger. <laughs> um, so I didn't have very high expectations, but I wouldn't with an open mind because while, while I'm pretty selective with seafood, I, I'm always willing to try new stuff. Yeah, so it, it, was, it was definitely really good. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised. I think the, the coolest part about it, though, was pulling up there, realizing that this is one of the places that heart partners with uh, in their oyster recycling program. I'm glad Max and Brianna enjoyed the oysters, although I have to admit, I was kind of secretly hoping that one of them didn't like oysters, just for the podcast listening experience. We'll come back to that oyster recycling program that Max mentioned. First, though, I want to talk about why the program was needed. Once abundant oysters fed early Americans, but oyster populations plummeted since then. Today, oyster reefs are one of the world's most threatened habitats. Oysters grow together in estuaries on top of previous generations of oysters. Over time, this created reef structures along shorelines. And by over time, I'm talking about thousands of years. The oyster reefs that once lined Texas shores were formed around the time of Jesus of Nazareth. They're as old as the Roman Empire, or China's terracotta army, or maybe even the pyramids of Giza. But it only took less than a century for oyster reefs to almost disappear. In the modern world, Rachel Carson once observed, there is no time. Starting in the early 20th century, the Texas shell dredging industry dug up much of the state's massive oyster reefs. They used hydraulic dredges and big barges to haul what they called mud shell to the shore. The reef shell became roads, following the coast from Corpus Christi all the way to Beaumont. By the 1930s and 40s, the industry grew. 
The demand came from chemical plants that popped up along the coast in that era, like bluebells in the springtime. Even more reef shell became caustic soda or lime. Caustic soda was used in household products and in the refining of petroleum. Lime was used to make magnesium out of seawater. In the next two decades, shell dredging reached its height. They took 10 to 12 million cubic yards from Texas bays each year. To put that in comparison, that's like digging up the volume of the Dallas Cowboys stadium every eight to 10 years. No wonder why the Gulf has lost 50 to 80% of its historic oyster populations. But shell dredging wasn't the only reason for a decline. Poor water quality, the lack of freshwater inflow, oil spills, hurricanes, and diseases are among the other causes. Oysters can live within a range of temperatures and salinities, but too much salinity or too much freshwater kills them. That's why rain-drenched hurricanes or the lack of freshwater inflow both kill oysters. In the last episode, we focused on the importance of freshwater inflow. We heard from Dr. Paul Montagna, who's an expert in coastal ecosystems. Studying freshwater inflow drew Paul to oysters. I wanted to start this, this shellfish initiative to start looking at shellfish in general because I realized that shellfish were important indicators of freshwater inflow effects. <laughs> Oyster, shrimp, blue crab, okay? And we started out with oysters. And when we started looking at oysters, we discovered a whole bunch of disturbing things. Number one is that it's the most degraded habitat in the world. Everyone's worried about mangroves and coral reefs, and it's true. We've lost about 30% of our mangroves and coral reefs worldwide. But we've lost 85% of our oysters worldwide. And in the U.S., it's been particularly devastating. Along the Texas coast, the Hart Research Institute has become a leader in oyster recovery. I recently video chatted with Dr. Jenny Pollock about her work with oysters. Dr. Pollock is the Chair for Coastal Conservation and Restoration at the Hart Research Institute. She leads a team of scientists and students on oyster reef restoration, among other projects. I would describe her as a go-getter. She's really a shining star at our university. And when we sat down, she explained to me why we should focus on rebuilding reefs. Oyster reef restoration is important for the numerous benefits that are provided by oyster reefs. Historically, oyster reefs have been valued almost primarily just because it's a food source, right? But now we've started to learn that biodiversity is enhanced greatly by the presence of reefs in the bay. We know that water clarity and water quality can be substantially influenced by oysters because they're filter feeders and they're removing phytoplankton and, and excess nutrients and wastes and things from the water and making it cleaner and clearer. We know that extends to things like nitrogen regulation. So instead of having to pay a certain amount of money to put, say, tertiary treatment on a wastewater treatment plant, we know that oysters are already removing that nitrogen just naturally being in the bay. Things like shoreline protections. We know that the oyster reefs, if they're oriented near shoreline, can provide really good wave buffering benefit. Recreational fishing support. So we know that you know recreational fishing is such an important, iconic part of our, our coastal communities. And we know that fishermen target those reefs because those reefs 
tough nooks and crannies where the prey critters live and the sport fish come in there and feed on those reefs and it's a great place for recreational fishing and another benefit that we're just just kind of the tip of the iceberg at starting to learn about is carbon sequestration so there's a lot of interest in planting forests or protecting coastal marshes and things because we know that they can capture and store atmospheric co2 we're just starting to learn about the role of oysters in doing the same thing so they are like i was saying they're filter feeders so they are consuming those phytoplankton that are taking co2 out of the atmosphere and then they're transferring that essentially to the sediments at the bottom of the bay so it's outside of circulation with the atmosphere and so oysters their role, which can be really potentially significant in doing this, we're just starting to learn about. There's a real strong area of research on a topic called ecosystem services. And these are sort of these non-monetary benefits that the environment can provide humans. And for oysters, the list is just very long of these additional benefits that can be provided. Those ecosystem services are pretty amazing. One oyster alone filters 50 gallons of water every day. And when oyster reefs are rebuilt for storm protection and all of those other benefits, that's been called green architecture or oyster texture. The most famous example of this is the Billion Oyster Project in New York. High school students and other volunteers help rebuild oyster reefs in New York Harbor. Their goal, as you might be able to tell from the name, is to restore a billion oysters. Here on the Texas coast, Hart's goal is five billion oysters, according to Dr. Larry McKinney the chair for Gulf Strategies at the Heart Research Institute, and its former director. It's ambitious, but they've been restoring reefs for almost a decade. The program started by partnering with local businesses. Here's Dr. Pollock again. The Oyster Shell Recycling Program has been a really important part of what we do. Brad Lomax, who is a local restaurateur in town, approached Paul with this question, and another colleague of mine, Joe Fox, was involved in these early conversations as well, and Essentially, he said, I have all this shell in my restaurants, shucked shells from, you know, the raw bar, and it's very expensive for us to deal with because they get charged by the weight and the volume of their trash removal services. And the oyster shells are obviously heavy and they're bulky. You can't really compress that in your trash bags. So he said, there, there must be something you can do with the oyster shells. Like, is there a need for oyster shells? On the East Coast and the Carolinas, there are really well-established oyster shell recycling programs there. We took that idea and we wanted to create something here on the coastal bend that made more sense for the way that the shells are produced, which is the majority of it is from restaurants. Although we do work with some festival seafood festivals as well. And so along with Gail Sutton, who is the associate director here at the Heart Research Institute, we got together, we identified a partner within the port of Corpus Christi where we could stockpile the shells and we developed this program, which is essentially The oysters are harvested, they go to the restaurants, at the restaurants people eat the oysters, and they separate then the shell from the trash. So they put it in a separate special bin, they put those bins outside, and then as often as once once a day, if they need us to, we go out there and we pick up those oyster shell bins and then take them to the Port of Corpus Christi where we stockpile the oyster shells, which has to be done for six months in Texas, just in case of invasive species or anything that could have been present on those shells. And then once we've stockpiled enough of them, that's the substrate that we can then use to restore reefs. Brad Lomax a long time ago said, oyster shells in the landfill are a resource out of place. And that's exactly how we feel. 
we've been doing that since 2009 and we've restored over 25 acres of reef now using those shells. Now, if you're like me, you're probably wondering who gets the pleasant job of picking up all the shells. It's a student job. We pay them well because, as you can imagine, <laughs> in the summertime, going to pick up oyster shells that have been sitting outside is not a very desirable job. We, yeah, so they'll go, they go really frequently. So we have several restaurant partners all the way from Port Aransas to Padre Island and in Corpus Christi right now that we pick up from. When I learned more about restoration from Dr. Pollock, I found out it's not as simple as throwing oyster shells back into the bay. Location is key. That was one of the first questions that we started to ask, where do we restore? There's certainly better places where we can be more assured of success than other places. And we, you know, we want to put our money in those places. So what we did was we took Texas Parks and Wildlife monitoring data for oysters and water quality, so things like salinity, temperature. We brought in depth data. We looked at oyster recruits, like the new baby oysters that were attaching onto reefs. We looked at the adult oysters. We looked at the size of the oysters. So we took all this Parks and Wildlife data, which at the time was maybe 30 years of data, all up and down the coast, and then we we basically layered all of the different variables on top of each other in a map and we were able to visualize these are the places that have the best conditions for oysters, these are the conditions that have the worst conditions for oysters, and we created this tool that could be available to anyone who wanted to restore oysters in that system to say, if you have money to restore, these are your best or sort of least risky places based on historical data. And then these places would be, you know, there's higher uncertainty about success. And then last year we finalized, we scaled that up to the whole coast. So now all the way from Louisiana to Mexico, if you want to do oyster reef restoration, you can go on our freely available website, which is oysterrestoration.org. And folks can pull up a map for any of the bay systems that is shaded like that. They can look at what the conditions on the current oyster reefs are. They can look at the water quality conditions. And the idea is we want to support anybody's efforts to restore habitat and give them all the tools. That's another thing that's really been beneficial, I think, and has really allowed us to be successful in our habitat restoration efforts is that we know that site selection is critically important. You could do everything else right, but do it in the wrong site, and it's not going to work. And we've really spent so much effort and time looking at what those fundamental conditions need to be, and we want to share that with other people in the state as well. Another issue with restoration is that there is still a commercial oyster industry in Texas. They use smaller dredges pulled behind boats to gather the oysters. You essentially have like the shells or the oldest oysters in the center of the reef, and then you have a veneer of living younger oysters on the outside of the reef. That's the habitat that's necessary for sustainability of oysters. But we dredge that habitat to harvest the oyster. So there's no way to get the oyster without taking the habitat, those shells, with you. It really creates a much more complex challenge in terms of thinking about restoration, conservation, management. To deal with the destructiveness, other scientists at heart are now working to establish oyster farming in Texas. And Dr. Jenny Pollock has spent over a decade restoring oyster reefs in the region. They have two different ways to put shells back in the water. One is a large-scale approach, and the other uses volunteer labor. Let's say we have enough shell stockpiled and we want to restore an oyster reef. 
at the time of building the reef, there's typically two different approaches that we use. The large scale approach that we use would be working with a marine contractor who would essentially barge all of our oyster shells out to the project site and place them in the water according to our design specifications. The main drawback is that unless you happen to be on the shoreline that week that the reef is being constructed, you don't even know that it's happening because again, it's below the water, it's a below the water feature. The other way that we restore reefs is using people. This is where we use our community habitat restoration events. We invite anybody who's interested from the community, tourists, school kids, anything to come out and join us. And we have events that usually last about three hours. People come out, we use shovels to bag up some of that recycled oyster shell into mesh bags. And those bags of oyster shells serve as those fundamental building blocks or kind of the nucleus for the growth of the reef. We then carry those bags down and place them in an area of the water that we've predetermined and kind of pre-staked out. And we sort of build our reef just like you would tile on the floor. You put bag after bag after bag and then build up the ver vertical relief that we want with those bags. The drawback of that one is that you're not getting very much acreage. You know, you're not able to restore a huge area, but the benefit of it is that you have hundreds of people who are involved, who know what's happening, who have this stake in the success of that reef. It builds this culture of environmental stewardship. Dr. Pollock has found getting volunteers involved to be particularly worthwhile. You know, it's great. I am somebody who has always kind of been curious and been an outdoor person, but there are lots of people who aren't like that as well. People can have grown up right here with the bay in their backyard, but if they didn't have a boat or maybe don't have interest in, in fishing or something, they may not have a real personal connection to the bay. It just sort of is in the background. People have told me, I've never gotten into the bay before. I've never gotten into the water before. People have told me, I didn't realize that the oyster was an animal living inside of the shell. I thought it was just the shell. Or they'll say, I see these shells on the beach. These are oysters? Or, you know, we'll take some of the oyster reef out of the water and we'll put it into some clear tanks when we're out there so that people can see all of the fish and shrimp and crabs and things that are living in the reef so that they understand that it's a habitat. And every, I mean, everybody, it's adults, kids, everybody just get such a kick out of seeing what's out there. And comments people are telling me and the excitement that they have, it sort of reveals this whole world that's been right there, but hasn't been something that they've had access to until now. It's super rewarding. I know that sounds like a cliche, but it is super rewarding because it's fun to kind of show your world and the things that you love with the people who are here and can experience it more on their own now that they've sort of seen what's possible and what's out there. Like a true scientist, she also enjoys it when the oysters get put in the water. For me as a scientist, this is kind of the most exciting part because that's when we can start collecting some data. We've always really been focused on making sure that if we're going to restore a reef, we want to create something that mimics that lost natural habitat as much as possible. As a historian, when I hear about restoration, I wonder what time things are being restored back to. But in this case, it's not a matter of restoring to the past but of setting present-day baselines connected to modern living reefs. The problem with that for oysters is that we know there have been such severe declines in oyster populations that essentially we could restore forever right now to get back up to where we were in the past. Anything in the positive direction is good right now. 
So instead of that, what we typically use are reference reefs. An ideal reference for us would be a natural reef located nearby that's subject to the same environmental conditions at the same time as our restored reef. So we can compare what the best that we could expect would be. But we also use restoration targets. We typically constrain our success using those data points more than we do sort of a historical baseline just because so much has changed. One other thing about historical baselines that's a challenge is for places like Chesapeake Bay where you hear about that was the oyster heart of the United States at the turn of the 20th century. And the conditions there have changed so much because the oysters have been removed, but then the water quality changed, the hydrodynamics changed. The Chesapeake Bay today is a very different system than Chesapeake Bay that used to host that many oysters. So it's also challenging to say, if we just keep restoring oysters and putting them back, it can take us back in time. Yeah, so we use more kind of contemporary measures of success. Regardless of how you measure it, they have found success. The future of oysters on the Texas coast looks particularly bright. You've been listening to The Golf Podcast. This podcast is made possible by the Heart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies at Texas A&M University Corpus Christi. Special thanks to Dr. Jenny Pollock. To read the episode script and sources or listen to oral history interviews, please go to our website. Music in this episode came from the band Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks also to my production assistant, Max McClure, for interview transcription, production help, and his adventurous taste. This is Dr. Jen Brown, signing off. Thank you.